So will you take your Bibles and turn to John chapter 1? We're going to be looking at verses 14 through 18 over the next couple of weeks. Once again, preparing our hearts for this Advent season, for Christmas. What a wonderful privilege it is to immerse ourselves into the Word of God. And I hope you have an appetite for the Word of God. If you don't, you're spiritually dead, right? Cadavers have no appetite, but people that are spiritually alive do. And so I hope your appetite is raging for the word this morning. You know, 2020 has been a year of deception, of corruption, of fear, of sickness, on and on, right? It's been a difficult year. In fact, someone from another state called me and they were so frustrated with their church because they, their church, many of the people in the church have taken up just the vile abominations of the uh, democratic socialist um, party that's taking over our country. And I remember talking with them about several things, but passing on uh, something that I put in your bulletin, words of encouragement from the 17th century Oxford theologian John Owen, his book on meditations and discourses on the glory of Christ, one that I would heartily recommend. He said this, God in his appointed time will effectually vindicate his honor and glory from the vain attempts of men of corrupt minds against them. In the meantime, it is the duty of all those who love the Lord Jesus in sincerity to give testimony in a peculiar manner unto his divine person and glory according to their several capacities because of the opposition that is made against them. I have thought myself on many accounts obliged to cast my might into this treasury, and I have chosen so to do, not in a way of controversy. He went on to say, but so as, together with the vindication of the truth, to promote the strengthening of the faith of true believers, their edification and the knowledge of it, and to express the experience which they have or may have of the power and reality of these things. And then he adds, beholding of the glory of Christ is one of the greatest privileges and advancements that believers are capable of in this world or that which is to come. Hereon do our present comforts and future blessedness depend. Amen. So with this in mind, let's focus on the glory of Christ and some of the life-changing truths that we find in his word. Let me remind you before we look at the text that in the first five verses of John's gospel, he stuns his readers by revealing certain truths concerning the glory of the Son, the incarnate word, the divine word, the babe in the manger, shall we say, who also became our Savior that hung on a cross and now sits at the right hand of the Father. You will recall when we've studied this in the past that in those first five verses of John, we see that, that he, Jesus preexisted with God, he coexisted with God, and he self-existed with God. 
That's why often John's gospel is called the Holy of Holies of the New Testament. In the beginning, it says in John 1, in the beginning was the Word, was, was in the imperfect tense of the verb to be, from which we get I am, Jesus was the great I am, and the point of that is he's simply saying, in the beginning, the great I am was already in existence. There has never been a time when the Lord Jesus Christ has not been in existence. And he goes on to say, and the word was with God. The Greek there is far more expressive and informative than, than the English. What we see there in the Greek, prostan theon, ex- expresses the idea of face to face. So the phrase pictures two eternal beings. The Word, referring to the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son, and God the Father, facing each other, enjoying sacred, meaningful relationship and communion with one another. The text goes on to say, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Him, and apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. He then goes on to reveal how the divine Lagos was the true light that enlightens all men and women who put their faith in him. But his own people, the Jewish people, rejected him. They rejected the light. They did not receive him. He said to them he gave the right to become the children of God to all of us, but many reject that. Ah, but after all of this now, we come to the passage that we have before us, beginning in verse 14. And if you think about it in this prologue, as, as, as a musician, I, I always think in these terms. And, and, and frankly, at this point, I can begin to hear the timpanis roll. You all know what timpanis are, those big kettle drums, Hear the roll begin to thunder, the strings begin to get louder in the orchestra, and there's a divine revelation of, 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 shall we say, crescendo that's happening here. And suddenly the cymbals explode and the trumpets blare, and we come to verse 14. Here's what he says, and the word became flesh. And dwelt among us, and we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testified about him and cried out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. For of his fullness we have all received, and grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth were realized, Through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father. He has explained him. At last, John's introduction erupts into this, shall we say, just a soul-exhilarating oratorio concerning the glory of the incarnate word. The eternal word that became human flesh. The uncreated creator of the universe 
took on flesh. He inhabited that which he created. It's mind-boggling, isn't it? The infinite became finite. The invisible spirit would become tangible humanity. And ultimately, as John will go on to reveal, the incarnate word, the Son of God, would live among men in order that he might die in our place and thus fulfill the purpose of the incarnation. The climax of God's condescending grace towards us who believe. So here in the final climactic verses of John's prologue in verses 14 through 18, he's going to reveal four marvelous truths that we want to look at closely. He's going to reveal, number one, the glory of the incarnate word. Secondly, the historical life of the incarnate word. Thirdly, the fullness of the incarnate word. And finally, the character of the incarnate word. And this morning, we'll only have time to look at the first two. And I pray that that these astounding truths will just arouse your soul to breathless adoration and praise to our glorious God and our Savior, the Lord Jesus. So let's look first of all at what the inspired writer has to say concerning the glory of the incarnate Word. Notice verse 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Utterly astounding. That which man could not ever see and live was suddenly able to be seen, to be touched, to be heard, to be emulated. He became something he was not previously. However, he did not cease to to be God. Rather, he became man. Fully God, yet fully man with a human nature, yet without sin. Remember Hebrews 7 and verse 26 As a man, he was holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners. Here, beloved, the Logos, the divine word, this personal God, who is the source of all revelation of truth and wisdom, who had already existed at creation, prior to creation, a self-existent God, became flesh and dwelt among us. Now, Many deny that Christ was fully God and fully man. The cults deny this, although the primary purpose of John's gospel is to refute this. You will recall in chapter 20 and verse 31, we read that he has written these things that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. But it's entirely probable here that the Holy Spirit moved upon John's heart to write these things to combat a prominent heretic of that day by the name of Serenthus, who, by the way, was John's fierce opponent at Ephesus. Let me give you a little background here. We learn much about this battle from Arrhenius, who was a second century church father and apologist. By the way, as a footnote, Arrhenius uh, was a friend of Polycarp. You will remember uh, Polycarp was the pastor of the church of Smyrna that we read about in Revelation chapter 2, and that was where Arrhenius was born. 
And Polycarp was traditionally described as a disciple of John the Evangelist, whose, whose gospel we are now examining. Now, according to Arrhenius, this heretic, Serinthus, by the way, don't ever name your child Serinthus, all right? Serinthus taught that Jesus was merely the human son of Mary and Joseph, although he was extremely brilliant and very wise. And they taught that at baptism, Christ descended on him in the form of a dove, but then left him on the eve of his suffering, the eve of his crucifixion, and that it was not Christ who suffered and died and rose again, but Jesus, a mere man. Now, Serinthus belonged to a cult known as the Docetists. Uh, the Docetists uh, it comes from a Greek word, dokeo, which means to seem or to appear. Uh, they believed that Christ's body was either a phantom or an apparition of some sort, or that the divine spirit of Christ somehow descended upon the man Jesus at his baptism. And of course, this fit well into the demonic Greek philosophy of that age, known as Greek dualism. We've talked about this before, where matter is evil, but spirit is good. And so for them, God, who is spirit and therefore good, uh, could never take on a material body because that would be evil. So you see how Satan uses the culture and all of these deceptions to promote these lies. Well, obviously, this heresy infuriated John, who knew and loved Jesus. In fact, there's an interesting story. Arrhenius claimed that there were those who had heard from Polycarp that John, the disciple Jesus loved, entered into a bathhouse in Ephesus, but upon entering, guess who was inside? He discovered it was Serenius inside. And it is said that John started running out of the bathhouse screaming, let us flee, lest even the bathhouse fall down because Serenthus, the enemy of the truth, is within. Interesting little story. Well, to be sure, there remain even to this day those who deny the truth concerning the deity of Christ and the incarnation of Christ. They deny what we call the hypostatic union of the two natures of Christ. I'll explain that more in a moment. From October 8th to November 1, in A.D. 451, a large church council convened in the city of Chalcedon near Constantinople, which is modern-day Istanbul, Turkey. And they were going to settle this confusion regarding the person of the Lord Jesus Christ once and for all. And, and what they decided became the, the standard orthodox definition of the biblical teaching of the person of Christ. They said that the two natures of Christ occur together, quote, in one person, in one subsistence. By the way, the Greek word for subsistence is the word hypostasis, which means being. For this reason, uh, the union of Christ's human and divine natures in one person is sometimes called the hypostatic union of Christ. This simply means the union of Christ's human and divine natures are in one being. Let me read to you what they wrote in 451 A.D. 
Therefore, following the Holy Fathers, we all with one accord teach men to acknowledge one and the same Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, at once complete in Godhead and complete in manhood, truly God and truly man, consisting also of a reasonable soul and body of one substance with the Father as regards his Godhead, and at the same time of one substance with us as regards his manhood. Like us in all respects, apart from sin, as regards his Godhead, begotten of the Father before the ages, but yet as regards his manhood, begotten for us men and for our salvation of Mary the Virgin, the God-bearer, the Theotokos, one and the same Christ, Son, Lord, only begotten, recognized in two natures, without confusion, without change, without division, without separation, the distinction of natures being in no way annulled by the union, but rather the characteristics of each nature being preserved and coming together to form one person and subsistence. By the way, that's hypostasis, all right? Not as parted or separated into two persons, but one and the same Son and only begotten God the Word, Lord Jesus Christ, even as the prophets from earliest times spoke of him. And our Lord Jesus Christ himself taught us, and the creed of the fathers has handed down to us. End quote. I know that was a little bit long, but I thought you needed to hear that. These are great men that loved Christ, and they looked into the Word and Here's what the word said, and shall we say they, they carved it in granite there that day. What a marvelous mystery. It reminds me of what we read in 1 Timothy 3.16. That was what we believe was the words to an ancient hymn that the Christians used to sing. It goes like this. By common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. He who was revealed in the flesh was vindicated in the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. And certainly we see this throughout the gospel record. We see it in Matthew's gospel. Remember in Matthew 1, we read how the angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. And in verse 20, we read what he said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife. For that which has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit, and she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for it is he who will save his people from their sins. Now, all this took place, that what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet might be fulfilled, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child, and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Again, Jesus had to take upon himself the nature of a man that he might be punished for our sin, and yet he also had to be fully God in order to endure the sufferings of the elect. This required a theanthropon, a God-man, the Lord Jesus Christ. So in his incarnation, both the human and the divine natures were supernaturally woven together and an indissoluble bond. The great Puritan theologian Francis Turretin said this, quote, both natures should be, should be associated that in both conjoined, both the highest weakness of humanity might exert itself for suffering and the highest power and majesty of the divinity might exert itself for the victory. 
Beloved, the babe in the manger had to become man. He had to have been born of a virgin in order for him to be both the son of man and the son of God. Son of, of a virgin according to the flesh, but Emmanuel, God with us according to the spirit. In fact, according to Hebrews 10, verses 5 through 7, we read that in eternity past, uh, the Father prepared a human body for the Son, for the Lord Jesus, a body that would never be tainted by sin. He would have no sin nature and could therefore become the perfect sacrifice that could appease the holy justice of God. This was the will of the Father. And Jesus came to do the will of his Father knowing perfectly well why he was taking upon himself, according to Philippians 2, verse 7, the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. We see more of this in Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 9. And there we read, but we do see him who has been made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. Beloved, he did not come just to die, but to die for us. As a man, he came to be our substitute. And of course, this is at the heart of the doctrine of the atonement. And you will recall that atonement refers to the, 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 the provision of a moral uh, or legal repayment of a fault or an injury. And atonement always required two things. It always required satisfaction and substitution. There had to be satisfaction for the offended holiness of God that could only be an, accomplished by an acceptable substitute for the guilty party. And of course, it would seem to be a dilemma that, that could not be resolved. This dilemma of man's sin, how can a holy God forgive sin? He is a just God. He can't just let sin go unpunished. He can't just ignore sin and decide to give sinners undeserved blessing. He can't do that for if he were to do so, he would abdicate his holiness. But, dear friends, the resolution is found in Christ. You see, God, for his own glory, according to his great love for sinners, sent forth his Son to this earth to take on human flesh and to live a perfect life that we could never live. And then, according to God's eternal plan, the Lord Jesus Christ voluntarily bore the guilt and the curse of the sins of all who would trust in him. So there was a great exchange that took place on the cross of Calvary. For there, the Father made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Now, folks, don't miss this. God paid the penalty himself, causing mercy and justice to unite at the cross. 
And, and herein is the reason for the incarnation. Again, notice verse 14. And the word became flesh. Became literally means was made. Human language is incapable of accurately describing the indescribable mystery of, of the incarnation. And whenever I preach on these things, I, I, I just struggle to find words to, to help you see it. And for this reason, Satan, who is the quintessential deceiver, loves to take all of this and, and twist it around. For example, to take these words, became flesh, and misinterpret them. That the eternal word became flesh does not mean, and I want you to catch this, that he ceased to be what he was, namely God, very God. But rather, his divine nature was fused together with a human nature. You see, he did not merely become a man. He became man without ever ceasing to be God. And the word flesh here in this context refers to man's physical being. It, it expresses humanity with all of its frailty, with all of its mortality. He became fully human. If I can put it this way, the word became flesh, not a body. The word became flesh. He did not clothe himself in flesh. He did not dwell in man, he became man. And unlike his creation that are always becoming, the immutable word is an eternal being that entered the realm of time and space and became fully man while remaining fully God. Paul spoke of this in Philippians chapter 2, verse 6. Referring to Jesus Christ, he said, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking on the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Likewise, in Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 14, we read, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is, the devil. And in verse 17 of Hebrews 2, we read, He had to be made like his brethren in all things, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Folks, this is so amazing, and it is so fundamental to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Never forget this, and beware that many try to distort this. Cults are notorious at this. That's why in 2 John 7 we read, For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh. This is the deceiver and the antichrist. Well, we read then that the word became flesh and dwelt among us, but now let's look at the historical life of the incarnate word. Again, notice what it says, the word dwelt among us. This is so fascinating. The term dwelt comes from a Greek term, skinoo, which means to, to, to live or, or 
to camp in a tent. That's literally the idea. So in other words, we could say he tabernacled among us. He pitched a tent among us. The eternal word pitched his tent among us. Now, if we were to go, for example, to, his, to uh, Exodus chapter 40 in the Old Testament, we read how he did this with his covenant people in the tabernacle. You remember the ancient tabernacle, and later on, it was made into the temple. And whenever he did so, the brilliant, dazzling, ineffable light of his Shekinah would blaze forth and put his glory on display in the Holy of Holies as it hovered between the cherubim above the mercy seat. And it's important to note that the term Emmanuel, God with us, is, is a very, very noteworthy Old Testament concept. God repeatedly promised that his presence would guarantee the fulfillment of his covenantal blessings with his people. And this would often, as I say, manifest itself in his Shekinah, the presence of God's glory when he revealed himself in this radiant, um, blinding light. The presence of God was housed within the tabernacle and also later on the temple. In fact, the, the Hebrew term for tabernacle is mishkan, derived from the root word shakan, which means to dwell or to rest or to abide. And from shakan, we get the term shekinah, denoting the glorious presence of God. And the Israelites would camp in such a way that all of the tents were symmetrical and they could focus on the tabernacle that was in the middle of them and they could see the glorious light uh, shining up through the tabernacle. This mysterious light of his presence, his glorious Shekinah housed in the tabernacle and later on the temple. But dear friends, catch this now. In the incarnation of Christ, the Shekinah would be contained not within a tabernacle or a temple, but within the body of a child. Emmanuel, God with us, Jesus Christ. Is it any wonder that the fourth and the final angelic announcement would include a stunning display of the Shekinah glory of the living God who came to tabernacle amongst us? to be our Savior and our Lord. Let's consider just the historical life of the incarnate word in the Old Testament for a few minutes. Bear in mind that the Old Testament tabernacle foreshadowed the incarnation of Christ, the word made flesh. We can see the relationships there between what we would call the type and the antitype. A type is, is, is merely an example or a pattern, uh, a form. For example, God intended for Adam to correspond or resemble Christ. Adam was the type and Christ was the superior antitype. And in biblical typology, what we see is that the antitype is always greater than and superior to the type. Are you with me? There is an increase. There is a heightening. There is an escalation. Christ is superior to Adam, for example. Now think how this worked in the Old Testament tabernacle. 
You see, the Old Testament tabernacle foreshadowed the coming word that would dwell among men. The Old Testament tabernacle was the type, a temporary dwelling that was moved about in the wilderness that would eventually replace a more glorious and permanent temple. But ultimately, it was our Lord Jesus who was the superior antitype who tabernacled amongst us. Like the tabernacle, Jesus moved about from place to place. His dwelling among men was only temporary, about 33 years. The condition of, conditions of the wilderness where uh, the, the, the tabernacle was used foreshadowed even the, the Spartan conditions in which Jesus would one day live. He came and born in a manger with animals in utter obscurity. Is it not true that the Son of Man had no place to lay his head, right? Did, it, did he not hang upon a wooden cross? Was he not buried in a borrowed tomb? You see the Spartan conditions? By the way, as we examine the Pentateuch, we even learn that Israel only used the tabernacle in the wilderness approximately 33 years. The exterior of the wilderness tabernacle was, was humble. It was unsightly. Nothing that would catch the eye. Yet inside of it was housed the presence of the living God. And was not the same true of our blessed Savior in his incarnation. Like the tabernacle, his outward appearance was, was plain and humble. In fact, the Jews will one day confess what Isaiah has prophesied in Isaiah 53 too. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. Yet, dear friends, housed within that humble Outward appearance was the sole terrifying glory of the living God. You will recall the effulgence of his glory was briefly exhibited when he peeled back his flesh on the Mount of Transfiguration. We read there in Matthew 17 and verse 2 that his face shone like the sun and his garments became as white as light. Moreover, like the Old Testament tent of meeting, as it was sometimes called, the incarnate Christ housed the majesty of God, for he was God. I mean, think about this. What was not the tabernacle the place where God encountered men, right? That's why it was often called the tent of meeting. Exodus 25, verse 32, and you shall put the mercy seat on top of the ark, and in the ark you shall put the testimony, which I shall give to you. And there I will meet with you, and from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim, which are upon the ark of the testimony, I will speak to you. Dear friends, does this not picture the incarnate word, the only mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus? And did he not enter into the veil before us as our faithful high priest 
so that we could have access into the Holy of Holies, so that we could have access into the presence of the living God. Are we not unable to come to the Father but by Him? John 14, 6. Even as an Israelite could not come near unto Jehovah without approaching the door of the tabernacle, so too no man can come near unto Jehovah without approaching the incarnate Christ. Romans 5, verse 1, Paul says, Having been justified by faith, we have, catch this, peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by this faith into this grace in which we stand. May I show you some other striking contrast, the atonement for sin made for the people in the tabernacle foreshadowed the atoning work of the one who came to tabernacle amongst us. The Old Testament tabernacle housed the two tables of stone. They were held within the Ark of the Covenant, tablets upon which Yahweh inscribed the Ten Commandments that had been violated. But there was a lid on top of that ark, a lid that separated the violated law below from the hovering presence of God, the Lord Jesus and his Shekinah above the lid. He hovered in his Shekinah between the cherubim and that lid of that golden lid of separation had staggering implications for every sinner who wants to be reconciled to a holy god and the implications are basically this you see on that lid divine justice and mercy came together symbolically when the high priest would come in and sprinkle the blood of an animal once per year to make atonement for sin on Yom Kippur. And that lid was called the mercy seat. In fact, in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, that mercy seat is called the hilasterion, the place where the just wrath of God was symbolically propitiated. That's what the term means, propitiation. That's where the fury of his justice is appeased, symbolically satisfied by the blood that pointed to the lamb. And did this not picture the ultimate and the final propitiation when Jesus hung on the cross in our stead? when God himself provided the means to appease his own wrath. Absolutely amazing. But dear Christian, the best is yet to come. Do you realize that? You see, a day is coming when Jesus Christ is going to pitch his tent with us again. I cannot wait for that time. Only this time, we're going to be in the camp of the redeemed, in the kingdom of heaven. Let me remind you of this in Revelation 21, verse 3. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, 
and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them, and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will, not longer, there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. Now back to John 1.14. Notice what he says. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory. Glory as of the only begotten from the Father. You see, though, though veiled in human flesh, those who saw Jesus could see the very nature of the triune Godhead. And can there be a subject more precious than this? I think not. Even as the Shekinah glory was hidden within the Holy of Holies, behind the veil in the tabernacle and later the temple, it also remained veiled within the body of the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet here we see something John says, we beheld his glory. Well, what did they see? Just what did they see? Well, they saw in him the supreme excellency of his divine perfections. They saw his holiness put on display. You see, apart from Adam and Eve, prior to their fall into sin and the subsequent curse upon all men, no one had ever experienced a sinless being until Jesus but in our precious Savior, all who encountered him beheld his glory. And beloved, that's what we're doing right now. We don't see him physically, but we see him through the eyes of faith as he has revealed himself by the power of his spirit in his word. In his supernatural birth, you will recall that there was an angelic announcement to some lowly shepherds in which, according to Luke 2, 9, the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were terribly frightened. You see, his personal perfections were manifested in him. A body without blemish, a mind without equal. Imagine a personality without pride. Perfect manifestations of the fruits of the Spirit. They saw the glory of his incomparable teachings, his brilliant mind. They saw the awesomeness of, of his miracles, the righteousness of his indignation towards the wicked. They saw how he set aside his, his sovereign prerogatives and power. They saw his self-sacrificing agony and torture in the crucifixion on our behalf. They saw the exhilarating reality of the resurrection. And then they saw the stunning reality of a glorified Christ. And then the breathtaking marvel of his ascension back into glory. A.W. Pink says, Greatness is never so glorious as when it takes the place of lowliness. Power is never so attractive as when it is placed at the disposal of others. Might is never so triumphant as when it sets aside its own prerogatives. Sovereignty is never so winsome as when it is seen in the place of service. And, may we not say it reverently, deity had never appeared so glorious as when it hung upon a maiden's breast. Yes, indeed, dear friends, 
they saw as we saw, or as we see today, the infinite perfections of his glory. They witnessed it. They even saw the effulgence of his glory emanating from his body on the Mount of Transfiguration. In fact, Peter was there with James and John, and he says, we were eyewitnesses of his glory. You see, the Shekinah glory that once existed amongst the Israelites sadly departed because of their sin. You will read about that, of course, in Ezekiel. You see Ichabod, how the glory departed from the temple because of their idolatry. But we know that one day we're going to see that glory return, and we're going to see Christ in all of his glory. And we will be transformed into that same fullness. Think about that as we close this morning. Absolutely astounding. 2 Corinthians 3.18, But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory. Oh, child of God. Never forget these great truths. Teach them to your children. Meditate upon them. Let them motivate your worship and your service to Christ. Let them animate your heart to praise for the incarnate Christ who died in your stead. And who will one day receive you unto himself and transform you into his glorious image. And in these dark days that we're living in right now, may these great truths, these great promises just eclipse the sorrow and the frustration and the despair that we're sometimes prone to. Because we have been raised up with Christ, right? And as Paul says, since we've been raised up with Christ, let's keep seeking the things above where Christ is. Seated at the right hand of God, set your mind on the things above, not on the things of this earth. Because soon, and we believe soon, very soon, we're going to see him face to face. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for these eternal truths. They are beyond our capacity to even fathom. And were it not for your self-disclosure in your word, we would, we, we would have no idea of any of this. But I pray that you will help us to grasp what you have revealed to us and allow these great truths to motivate us to live for your glory. And Father, if there be one here today that knows nothing of what it means to be in an intimate, loving, humble, worshipful relationship with the Lord Jesus, may today be the day where they realize the horror of their sin and the glory of the cross May today be the day when they put their trust in Jesus and ask him to save them, to cry out for forgiveness, and to receive that forgiveness as well as his righteousness. Lord, we thank you. We give you praise for all of these things. 
in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. We pray you've been edified by this presentation. You've been listening to the teaching ministry of Calvary Bible Church in Jolton, Tennessee. For more information on Calvary Bible Church or for more audio, please visit our website at cbctn.org.